You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This episode of Uncorking Story is brought to you by the Michael Carla Novel Motel California. If you'd like a smart mystery but don't mind laughing along the way, Motel California is the book for you. You can buy it wherever books are sold online. Enjoy the show. Welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to share with you the conversation I recently had with Tony and Matt Pavia, authors of An American Town in the Vietnam War, Stories of Service from Stanford, Connecticut. I first met Tony about three years ago when he was the interim principal of Trinity Catholic High School when my triplets were just freshmen at that school. He's got a fantastic reputation in town as a great history teacher, and when you meet him, you immediately know why. He's engaging, very intelligent, and the kind of guy who you can tell has a great heart and equally great personality. We reconnected after his interim principalship, if that's even a word, uh, was up, (laughs) and uh, we were both signing books at Barnes & Noble in Stanford, Connecticut on a night where the store was actually recognizing Stanford authors. So that was actually very nice. Tony was signing copies of his first book, which is entitled An American Town Goes to War, which focused on World War II veterans from our town of Stanford, Connecticut. And I was there signing copies of my second book, Uncorking a Murder, which I should let you know is available for free now on Amazon.com or wherever books are sold online. Um, And that's where I also met his son, Matt, who was very eager to share with me that he and his father were working on a new book about the Vietnam War. So this was about, God, probably two or three years ago. Uh, They were just in the very early stages of doing the research for this book. And I remember thinking at the time, you know, I would love to have them on this program when uh, when that book was done. So I got to sit down with them uh, the other day to talk about the book in more detail. And uh, frankly, I I can't wait to read this one Um, just based on, you know, what I learned uh, the other day by talking to Tony and Matt. Um, Now, I'm someone who's always interested in stories that seem to contradict, you know, the accepted narrative about a a cultural event. And in speaking with Tony and Matt about their book, it it seems as if the picture they paint about the Vietnam War and about Vietnam veterans is actually quite different than what we've all seen in pop culture and heard through, you know, the news media. Um, In fact, one of the key takeaways they have is that Vietnam vets have, have been portrayed in an unfair way, and and that this group of, of soldiers you know, has accomplished much more than they're actually given credit for. Um, so please listen into our conversation to learn more about that. I do also want to let you know that their book, An American Town in the Vietnam War, Stories of Service from Stanford, Connecticut, is available for sale right now. Uh, you can get it on Amazon, um, and it does you know focus on the lives of veterans from our town of Stanford, Connecticut. But, you know, the insights uh, that they found and that they've uncovered through their research and through writing this book can actually be applied to Vietnam veterans from any town USA. 
And and just a quick heads up, some of you who have listened to this show before know that I, I don't always like to get right to business during these interviews. So uh, you're going to hear us uh, riffing a little bit on uh, on Bill Hader and uh, his his being a master of uh, somewhat unique impressions. Um, so that's where the conversation starts with a little uh, Bill Hader conversation and and our our mutual affection for his Keith Morrison impersonation. Um, I mean, seriously, no one else I know actually does a Keith Morrison impersonation. Um, so that's where the conversation starts. We quickly get down to business, though, talking about uh, their book, which, again, is An American Town of the Vietnam War, Stories of Service from Stanford, Connecticut. I hope you enjoy this episode. And uh, without further ado, here it is. Say, if somebody looked into my browser history... They would they would be mortified. Dateline. Yeah, yeah. This is yeah. how, yeah. how Keith Keith uh, Keith Morrison's gonna pop out. Oh. <laughs> like, oh. <laughs> and well, no one expected. What they saw. You ever see Bill Hader do him on Saturday yeah, Night Live? Yeah, that's the absolute Hader. best. Oh. oh, but but who who else could do a, a Keith Morrison impersonation? Well, that's the thing. He picked. He would pick some very obscure people to impersonate, but he was just. But he has that deep voice, Bill Hader. Right. Yeah, but he also, like, he, you know, of all the, he did probably, he probably has like a hundred impersonations that he does, but one of the best that he does is Alan Alda. Like, who would ever oh, think? Yes. Who does an Alan Alda? Who would think, like, hey, I'm going to I'm gonna teach myself how to impersonate Alan Alda. Yeah. But it's uncanny. I'm going to Hawkeye Pierce it today. Right. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> the over the top in his outfit. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, boy. Oh, my. The, oh. the you're a rat bastard Charlie Brown. Have <laughs> you seen that? I haven't. Oh, my God. It's like a commercial for a Broadway musical. <laughs> like you see on TV where people are talking about how great it is and the narrator's pulling blurbs from the reviews. And, and it's But it's not the Charlie Brown Christmas. It's you're a rat bastard Charlie Brown. <laughs> and it's starring all of these like Larry David as Schroeder. And it's Martin Short doing Larry David, and it's Edie Falco as Lucy, and it's um, Kate Mc. No, who was it doing? It no. was Kate McKinnon doing it, Edie Falco. It was, um, the nanny. Fran Drescher was Fran no. Drescher she was the voice of the. the wah, wah, wah. Yeah, and and Al Pacino I think plays Charlie Brown. My, it's just really funny. Yeah, it's worth yeah, he seeing. Calls somebody a, when he misses the football. He calls yeah. somebody a you bitch. <laughs> My favorite Bill Hader, though, is when he does that Italian, uh, oh, the Italian Vinny interview. Vinny Vinici. Vinny Vinici. And he's talking to John Bon Jovi. With all the cigarettes. <laughs> bon Jovi's like, I don't speak Italian. And it's just a, like. Um, what, was it for Showtime or HBO? Barry. Barry. Oh, Maybe. God, that's great. It's very dark, but oh, it's dark. Really great. It I'll tell you who's great in that is Henry Winkler. Yes. Yeah. I mean, yes, Henry Winkler, the acting it teacher. It was good to see him back, and he was great. But. but I'll tell you, Bill Hader's likable, too. Yeah. That's the thing. He's very likable. So. Reminds me of my cousin Johnny. That's a good, good story. Skinny boy. There you go. Well, here we are. Uh, so we're, we're here in Trinity Catholic High School. Now, Tony, I know you you went here. Is that, uh, do I have it? Yes, uh, class of uh, 1972. Did they have running water here back then, or was it like still like a well? or? Yeah. Uh, they had uh, uh, a thing called a fan. <laughs> that was the uh, ventilation when it was 100 degrees. But uh, it was actually a, a relatively brand new building when we got here. In 72? Yes. 
It was state-of-the-art, and the design won many awards. So Interesting, interesting. And Matt, did you – you didn't attend uh, the school, did you, or – No, I, I didn't go here, and I, I don't think really many of my friends even went here by the time um, – I don't think I had actually been inside the building until a couple of years ago, until oh. when you started working here. I think I might have done like a summer baseball camp here when I was a, a little league, uh, yes, age kid. But but that's about it. Right. So where you were doing this interview here, I thought it was it would be an appropriate place um, to uh, to talk about it because we are sitting here in, in Stanford, Connecticut, which is where both of your both of your books are about Stanford. Uh, and people who went to war, uh, Vietnam War or World War II. Um, so, the, hey, what, what better place to do than uh, the place where, where you were during the Vietnam War? Absolutely. And it was never lost on me that while we were writing things, I was flashing back to that exact time and what I was doing and thinking here, you know, especially – 68 to 72. Yeah. So kind of very turbulent in the years, a lot, of, a lot of culture. I mean, the culture at large was changing or had changed, you know, from you know, the period of the 50s, um, you know, through the early part of the 60s, and then all of a sudden mid-60s happened, and it's, uh, it's a completely different culture then. It was um, in, in, an incredible uh, change, and, and every paradigm shifted 100%. Um, you, you looked one way in 1968, you looked completely different in 1972. You thought one way in 68, you, you thought an entirely different way in 72. Everything was turned upside down. Yeah. So I, I do want to uh, talk about the books. Before that, though, I do want to talk about uh, a little bit about your, yourself, Tony, and then Matt will sure. we'll circle back over to you. Um, I know that you were a history teacher, and I know that because I've had various – People come up to me and tell me that Tony Pavia was their favorite teacher, <laughs> uh, and that that includes my brother-in-law Tom Hart, who went to West Hill High School. Uh, other friends I know who went to Stanford High School. Um, I know you did some time in New Canaan. You did some time, obviously, uh, as a principal and interim principal here at Trinity. Um, what what drove you to teaching, and and why history? Uh, believe it or not, and no one put me up to this. This place uh, did. I I was. Um, I had a, uh, a rather bumpy high school um, academic career, and um, I, I felt that um, r- very fine teachers and people uh, helped me through the time, and it was never lost on me that um, that I owed these people an awful lot. So uh, for me, the most important thing I could do what would uh, was to do the same thing that was done for me to be a teacher and and not only be a teacher but to go above and beyond the way my teachers did here is there anyone in particular who inspired you anyone who stands out in terms of those those people back then there there were so many um, and because it wasn't just an academic I could tell you who inspired me academically, and I could talk about specific classes, but but really, um, the the the, um, the game changer for me was these were great people who cared about me as a person, and who were willing to overlook the little bumps uh, that I had uh, to help me. So um, there are so many. Of course, Ernie Borsier, I never had as classroom teacher. Yet, 
uh, he adopted me. Uh, he was dean of discipline. That probably had something to do with it. But um, there were just so many people. Mr. Bianchi was the assistant principal. He was um, a, an incredible human being. Uh, Mr. O'Connor in the classroom uh, really inspired me to be a history uh, teacher. Um, I was telling Matt today, as much as I thought I never read anything, um, the, some of the uh, my freshman year here, I, when I think about some of the things we read and talked about, they were life changing. Well, anything pop out in, in, in your mind in terms of what was what do you consider to be life changing back in between '68 and '72? At, at this place? At this place, yeah. The, the, the thing I could tell you was that um, uh, everyone looked dramatically different than when they got here. <laughs> and I compare it to you know Kevin Arnold in The Wonder Years. That's exactly my window, 68 to 72. And kids looked one way coming in here. They had labels, who was a jock, who was this, who was that. Uh, heads, who were heads, they called them back then. Um but by probably 1970, all of that had changed. Yeah. Um, and um, you'd look back and say, wow, what what happened to that kid? <laughs> he came in here one way. Look at him now. And um, so I, I, I really I, – I would also say that it was an age of cynicism too. We were – we became relatively cynical and we were all wise guys and um, – there was a definite rift between the adult world and the adolescent world, which, by the way, I found was much less as a teacher. I can't compare anything as a, in 40 years of teaching that was as big a disconnect between adults and kids as that era. Yeah. So, Matt, you uh, you too are a history teacher. Um, I'm actually, uh, I'm actually an English teacher. Why did I? I have but, see, my research is wrong. Now. Well, it's 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 tricky because I am an English teacher. Um, but what I mostly teach is American literature, and that is, I think, very closely tied to American history. And then I also, for years, have taught a class that's called American Studies, which is an interdisciplinary course. I teach it together with an American history teacher, and we sort of blow up all the boundaries between the two disciplines. So it's like learning history through literature and looking at um, – yeah, looking at history through literature <laughs> and, and also art and music and politics. And, and I was going to say, I always wondered if, if somebody could, out there could put together a class that <clears throat> intertwines kind of art, history, literature, and music. Yeah, it's what, it's, it's what I love about that course in particular because as we move through the history of the country starting with Jamestown really and getting up into the end of the 20th century – Every step along the way, we're looking at not just uh, a textbook and just certain names and dates in a textbook, but you're reading, you know, fiction and nonfiction from those periods of time. You're looking at political cartoons. You're listening to music. You're watching. As you get into the 20th century, you're maybe listening to radio show excerpts or watching an episode of a, an, a landmark television show and um, news broadcasts. And, and you're, it's just sort of looking at the interconnectedness of all of these different elements of a nation's culture. So what, what drove you to kind of the, the a teaching career? I mean, it, it, certainly the there's, you know, a lot of, uh, I'm sure, lucrative money to be made in the world of teaching. But what, <laughs> I, really, what, no. what was it that drove you to, um, <clears throat> to follow in, in, to some extent, your father's footsteps? Well, it was 
first of all, it was really all I knew. Um, not to say I couldn't have, it's not like I wanted to do other things and, and felt constrained. In fact, my parents didn't want me to be a teacher, but it was really all I really understood as a kid. I mean, I knew what it, I knew it, it made total sense to me what teachers did. Other things, like I knew what it meant. I, I understood what a police officer did, a fireman did, uh, maybe a doctor, a lawyer. I understood what they did, but the, the whole concept of being a businessman or doing something in the corporate world, I never really understood what that even entailed except maybe having a briefcase mm-hmm. and, and having meetings or lunch meetings. Or, or, so it was just never something that um, I, I never gravitated to anything having to do with you know, business or finance or anything like that. And, I, you know, my father was an American history teacher, so I grew up sort of imbibing American history uh, from a very young age. And I, I always loved it. I was fascinated by it. Um, and I, I loved school. I loved school as a kid. I, I can still rattle off the names of my, all my teachers going back to kindergarten. I genuinely liked being there. I was not always the best student. I think once I got into high school, I was a pretty mediocre student. I, I made up my own rules about what work was important for me to do and what work wasn't important to do. I, I felt like I don't really need to know this or this homework isn't uh, valuable. I, I wouldn't really do it. So I wasn't necessarily the greatest student, but I, but I always loved being there and I loved my teachers. Um, and it just seemed like I, it, it seemed like a profession that had a very clear, um, goal, purpose, and impact. Yeah. And, you know, when you're a teacher, you're also, you, you're, you're, you're teaching your subject. So you're sort of an expert in your subject matter. But you're also, especially at high school, you're also kind of a social worker um, and someone to vent to, and you're you're also trying to um, model certain behaviors or, or teach kids to be accountable for themselves. All, all of that sort of transcends whatever subject you you teach, and you know, teaching is also performance. It's also kind of acting or storytelling or stand-up comedy or improv so, comedy. Yeah, as, or, as or improv comedy. In my case, yeah. So. So it's just it, – it was something I, I kind of always imagined I would do, and I've never thought twice about it since. I've been doing it for 16 years now. Okay. Uh, so, Tony, um, I want to hear about the, the story about how the first book came about. So the first book, uh, An American Town Goes to War, which was published, if I have my numbers correct, in 1995. Yes. Uh, how did how did that book come about? What kind of drove you to to write that? Because it's not an insignificant undertaking. It's it's a funny thing because when I was in college in probably in the 74, 75, 76, oral history was becoming uh, the, the new thing. And I actually did an independent study project on oral history. And then I graduated and locked that away. But I always had this idea um, uh, about what it would be like to take one town and just – in this case, World War II, everywhere we looked around, your father, your uncle, your neighbor's father, the guy down the street, what would it be like to collect all those stories just to see what happened in one town? And I kicked it around for years. I had children, forgot about it. And then I started having veterans come into the school, and we did a Pearl Harbor presentation on the – it was the uh, 50th. 50th anniversary of Pearl Harbor, and I had speakers there. You brought me. Uh, did I bring you? Yeah, you brought yeah. me. I was there. Fifth and grade. you could hear the air go out of the room when these guys talked. Here's 
hundreds of teenagers absolutely silent. And I remember uh, telling a student, you know, I, I really wanted to do that. And he said, well, why don't you just do it? And, and literally the next day, I bought a tape recorder. It was around Thanksgiving of 90 uh, and uh, just became obsessive about it for five, <laughs> five years. And what school were you working at at the time? Stanford High. Okay. And then I finished it when I was at Darien High. But the entire time I stayed very connected with veterans and had them in the school. And um, and, and I just, uh, you know, I still think the stories in that book are incredible for just one town, you know. So, but really the second one, um, from almost the moment that was done, the you know, I in the back of my mind, I thought about Vietnam, and then Matt just got to be <laughs> just at the right point, and we sort of he 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 was the catalyst, I think, for the second one. Yeah, I mean, certainly for uh, for Vietnam, you must have known people who had who had gotten drafted and and gone over. I would imagine we uh, the a daily event was watching the draft on television, live television, or the Secretary of War would. It was like Lotto. See, today it's you know quick picks. Where you don't want the winning number. You didn't want it, and and they we, actually did pull the little balls out of the cage. They right? did. Like, like and and um, we were never uh, uh, going to uh, go to Vietnam. We, we had numbers pulled our senior year in high school, but the war was, for all intents and purposes, over at that point. But yeah. we did get lottery numbers. You all had draft cards. And, and um, it, it, it's, it's funny because you're, you're doing this, and at the same time you're – you're flashing back to those same years. These guys were only a year or two or three older than I was, and they had a completely different formative experience, yeah. adolescent experience, than I did. I mean, I, I you know, you, you you watch the news now, you read newspapers, and you know, there's one of the common uh, observations is how divided we are as a country right now. How does where where we are right now compare to where you know where you felt we were in in between sixty eight and seventy two? What's the compare and contrast there? I, I'll give my own opinion. Not even close today. Uh, if you take the media out of the equation, which instantly reports every time someone sneezes, th- this era isn't even close. I mean, try to ha- have you seen a demonstration with a million people? In, in your lifetime, right? They, that those happened regularly. Um, have you seen the kind of spectacles that at, at 1967 at the Pentagon or at, at the Democratic National Convention in 1968? Not even close. Uh, the bigger thing was th- this: this polarization that's going on now is political. It's between you know, the polarization that happened during the Vietnam was in families. You know, yeah. it was among families, uncles, cousins, yeah. nephews. And, and generations. And, and generations. And, and truly, there was this – the generation gap was a real, live, touchable, uh, uh, palpable <clears throat> thing. There was an enormous generation gap. So uh, I, I'd say we're living in trying times, but um, – um, there are parallels. There are definitely parallels. I, you know, I think there's – but 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 to your point, I think the chief 
difference is that the the divisions are maybe they're political, they're by party, they're regional. So we might not even necessarily feel it so much in our own communities because we tend to live now in more um, heterogeneous bubbles, mm-hmm. you know, or, or communities. Um, so maybe you know it's more regional or it's it's about specific partisan things, but it's not necessarily generational. And you, you know, Dad, you were saying before you, you never, as a teacher felt that same generational divide. I've never felt that in my, in my years of teaching. I never felt like there was a fundamental disconnect between the way I and my colleagues saw the world and the way that our students saw the world. There are differences. Like there, maybe there are, there are dependence on technology is different than ours, but it's not as if we're daily, it's not as if there's a daily clash of values and ideas that's manifesting itself all over the country. Um, but I think we are seeing some of – I think the demonstrations that we've seen in the last couple of years are, are smaller in scale perhaps. But I think they're resembling that kind of you know, resistance to, to the authority. I mean I think you mentioned – you were I think referring to moratorium before, a million people demonstrating. I think if you, if you look at like the Women's March uh, in Washington and, and, and all over the country in January of 2017 or if you – Look at the the March for Our Lives that was that going on throughout in cities throughout the country um, after the the school shooting in Florida. Those I think are in sort of the spirit of what was happening in Vietnam, but maybe they're not as frequent. They are, but you have to look at it from a relative standpoint. Uh, people today are almost shockproof. They, they really are because they've seen everything. And so if, if you take what's going on today, people are relatively numb slash indifferent to 24-hour, being bombarded 24 hours. But, but flashback then, you have an era where they didn't even say damn on television. And you go from that to a, a broadcast of a man being shot in the head in Vietnam of troops being shot and wounded and crying and screaming on the ground, of presidential candidate Robert Kennedy shot on, on, on tape, but, but on television, Martin Luther King. The, the shock yeah. of that era, the Democratic National Convention, I used to teach a class uh, when I taught Modern America simply on 1968, and I used to half make up, but I would pretend I was at the Democratic Convention in my living room with my father. And I'd say, Dad, and the kids would laugh because I'd say, Dad, <laughs> the guy said the F word on television, you know. Mm. Dad, the guy, you know, are, they're attacking each other on television. The Mayor are, Daly, yeah. the police are tear gassing kids. The shock value that's, yeah, that's of that point. era was, you know, I, I think really you hadn't seen that since the Civil War. So. Yeah, and just to think about all the, the music and culture that that, that impacted. You know, I, I think like I, you know, and I, I make I make jokes, but my kids these days they don't know what good music is. <laughs> you know, it's all electronic, and somebody hits a button, and then there's a beat. But you know, you think of the music that was inspired by that time period. Um, to me, that's and that's the stuff I listen to, and that's the stuff that um, to me is kind of timeless. But it tells the story of of that generation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, I remember watching the the. I can't remember. It was a ten-part Ken Burns documentary on Vietnam, on the Vietnam War that came out last year, yeah. last fall. And I remember thinking that he better get the music right 
and and that's a big expense from securing the licensing for all of those pop and rock and Motown R&B songs from the 60s and 70s is going to be expensive but there's no telling the story of that era without that music yeah. and and he did he did get you know he he secured the rights he even got notoriously reluctant people like Bob Dylan to lend their songs to the series um and it it was it 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 was it needed to be there i, I can't imagine the the series working as well as it did without that music in it so I mean, going back to that era and focusing on on your book, an uh, American town in the Vietnam War: Stories of Service from Stanford, Connecticut. Um, what process did you guys follow to to write this book? What and just kind of paint a picture for me on on what what the undertaking was and how you put it all together. Well, there were phases. So the first phase, once we once we decided that we were going to do this and and we were going to start it, um, was to do research, and we had to figure out a couple of things. One, if we're trying to figure out how many people from this one city, Stanford, served in Vietnam, how do we even go about finding that number? Is there a record somewhere? Uh, and then it was a matter of tracking people down and, and finding people we could interview, which was complicated by the fact that unlike a lot of the World War II veterans that you interviewed in the 90s who stayed in Stanford – that these kids who grew up in Vietnam, uh, grew up in Stanford and fought in the Vietnam War, have since scattered all over the, the country. So there are there were still plenty of people in Stanford, but we we also were tracking people down in Idaho and Alabama and Virginia and California and and even I even talked to a guy who was living part of the year in in Saigon, in Vietnam. So there's that, and then we were also trying to account for the people from Stanford who were killed in the war. The official or the, the so-called, uh, the semi-official number was something like 24 or 25. 20, uh, 25. It depended on yeah, where you went. But, but um, so we had to then f- find out who these people were. Who were these 25 people? Along the way, we discovered it was actually 29 people. Uh, and we decided that that was, that was a, a reasonable enough, it was a manageable enough, number of casualties that we could we could realistically write about each one of them mm-hmm. and so we started poking around online in the archives of the advocate the ferguson library um in obituaries and phone books trying to track down relatives of these 29 people who were killed would you were you looking at like microfilm and microfiche oh yeah, oh, yeah. It, was it was usually you'd start with a You'd get a name. So the the real only the closest thing we have to an official record of of people from Stanford who were killed in the Vietnam War is the monument downtown that has a list of names on a stone monolith. Um, there are Vietnam Wall websites that have records too, but they varied. They weren't even consistent with each other all the time. Um, so it's usually started with trying to find an obituary, and then from the obituary, looking at the names of the surviving relatives. And then looking for them, and you know that would have been going through uh, the white pages. Um, it could have been looking on Facebook. It could have just been Googling them and trying every permutation of the name you could find. And so that was the first phase. It was, was really tracking down and then ultimately interviewing friends and family members of almost all of the 29. Yeah. Some of them we, we just, despite our best efforts, we could not find a living person to talk to we still were able to write about all 29 but there are a couple who are still somewhat mysterious yeah to us um 
when we finished that segment of the book, the 29, we both had exactly the same reaction. We missed it. You know, it was like we looked at each other and said, I miss this, this, the search. But it was kind of like archaeology but, or, or but detectively, it was very awkward to cold call someone in Colorado after almost 50 years. You don't, we, we got some, initially, some very bad reactions. All of them turned out to be yeah. close friends. Matt called me one night and, and recounted a conversation. Oh, one guy scared the, the and I, crap out I of me. I chuckled. They're best friends now. Yeah. But it was initially. <laughs> because you're calling and saying, you don't, hi, my name's Matt Pavia. I lo- I'm a teacher. I'm a writer. I live in Stanford where you grew up, and you don't know me, but I'm writing a book about the Vietnam War, and I learned that you, your brother, and you know, you try to stumble your way through an explanation, and you have no idea what they're going to say, yeah. not only because you're a stranger, but also because it's not a generation of, because of the public perception of the Vietnam War, and because of that kind of loss of faith in institutions that came out of the Vietnam War, and because of the treatment of returning veterans. I'm, I'm curious um, we, to know they were they probably they didn't trust necessarily that we had good intentions that we weren't going to take the stories yep. and twist them to fit our own agenda. And I want to I want to know like what stories stand out from from your research. But before that, I want to know how you got past that initial resistance. You know what 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 did you do to you know get past the I don't want to talk to you or I'm yeah. suspicious about this. Well, I think you, the first thing is you you wait and see what they're in. Some people were instantly open to talking with us. I think it was usually easier. It, we, we learned that it was better if we could find a way to reach out to them by email um, because then they we weren't confronting them cold and forcing an immediate response from them. And so those were generally more instantly agreeable conversations because they you, you might email someone and they would have time to, to, to process it before they decided to get in touch with you. Um, but when you were cold calling someone, one guy, he kind of, he, he basically asked me, you know, wh- why do you want to know this? Or who are you again? And who told you about my brother? And then he, I could tell he was just, it, it hit a nerve just that someone was asking about it. So he actually said, give me your number. I'll call you back. And he hung up. And I don't know what he did. I don't know if he called someone, a friend, to find out if they knew anything about me or if he poured himself a drink or what. I I don't know. But he ended up calling me back about 10 minutes later, and he was a little bit calmer. And I think it's just when you explain what it is you're trying to do, and you have we had to explain very clearly that we're not – the book makes no attempt to render a verdict on – the war, um, you know, in terms of strategy or morality, that we weren't trying to push a particular view of the war. We were just simply trying to tell the stories of these ordinary people. Yeah. Um, that's it. It was that we wanted to tell, we wanted to let these people's stories see the, see the light of day. Every one of the 29, every single one had a twist to it. That, that's what was amazing about this. Uh, uh, someone uh, being shot down on the day his daughter is born, ne- so he never <coughs> met his daughter. Um, uh, p- best friends meeting on a ship before a mission. One, Norman Spinard, his childhood best friend, is on the Valley Forge. 
He leaves on a mission. He says, I'll see you later. He never returns. So, and they had been together for about a month on this ship. On the ship, you know, because that was the launching point for every one of them um, was uh, gut wrenching. Um, so, I, I would say, in even though um, in some cases we didn't do much more than scratch the surface on these, uh, we did have a sense of who these young men were. So you, you, you kind of uncork all these stories yourself. How do you deal with um, the sadness of it all? Because I am sure that there are, I'm sure there's some inspiration in there, but there's, I mean, you're, you're talking about 29 people who lost their lives yeah. at the prime of their life. And, and how do you, how did you guys as authors and researchers internalize that? And how did you deal with it? Well, you're right. It, it, the more you talked to family members of the deceased, and even when we talked to surviving veterans who, who made it home and lived very, have lived very fulfilling lives, there's still a lot of pain. Um, it's still very raw, even 50, in some cases, more than 50 years later. So I, I do think it, there wa- I did carry a, a certain sadness with me for the three years we were doing this. It was just a, it, in, in the most sort of classical sense, um, a, 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 an overwhelming feeling of tragedy. Um, with these lives cut down and the people that they left behind, but also the people who came back physically healthy but racked by, by flashbacks and depression and um, discomfort and, and, and bitterness about the way that they were treated by people when they came back. It was. It was a lot to internalize, but I think what kept me going was I, I, I felt like we were not bringing the people back to life, but we were, we were bringing – a lot of these stories I think would have just <clears throat> vanished. I mean how many people go and read the, the archives at the local library? Um, none of these people had been written about prior so I, I felt like there were, there was there was an overwhelming sense of tragedy about, about the whole scope and scale of the war and the individual lives. But at the end of the day, it still felt like we were doing something that was very cathartic for the families and for the veterans. I think a lot of the veterans didn't want to talk to us. I think they really – I think after we talked with them, in some cases we sat down for three and a half hours with them, I think you could see them working through their own demons as they spoke and and, and – all of the families of the, the deceased that we talked to, I can't tell you how appreciative and thankful they were and continue to be and how many of them check call and check up mm-hmm. on us and send us emails thanking us yet again. And So that felt I felt like we were at least in some small way bringing these people well, we were, back. We were memorializing them because most of them are forgot, totally forgotten. It's been 50 years. And uh, there's nothing worse than being forgotten. Uh, there's, without question, these uh, young men were cheated. And in so many instances, their lives were tragic. Uh, at least two were orphans, and some of mm-hmm. them had, they had very, very hard lives. lives. Yeah. And then some of them were Ivy League, uh, you know, from very privileged backgrounds. So, but in each case, they were cheated. But we, we thought, and, and I think the great satisfaction that we got was that we were able to tell their story. It's there now. So mm-hmm. somebody can look it up. If a school child wants to look it up and, you know, 
and read about someone. Um, there are schools around the country that, in history classes, do projects where they go on the virtual Vietnam Wall website, and they have they're in charge of finding out something about each of these, you know, one particular um, person who was killed in Vietnam. And I got a, I got an email maybe like April or May of last year from a girl who was a high school student, an American history student in a school in Austin, Texas. And she had been assigned Norman Smart from Stanford, Connecticut, and she found her way to us. Wow. And so I got And that's, that's a year before the book is out. Mm-hmm. How, did, how did she find you? I, because uh, the advocate ran a story okay. about us writing the book, and um, it, the article also talked about Norman Smart. Okay. So that was the link there. But, Tony, but that was pretty cool. That was pretty cool. How, how would you if, – if you had to, to tomorrow uh, design and teach or give a lecture – of on the Vietnam War, how, how does your experience, having gone through the research and, and co-written this book, how would that impact your, you know, what you would choose to talk about in that lecture? You know, Mike, I what was never lost on me is I was one of the early uh, teachers who taught the Vietnam War in a some organized fashion because I. You never reached it in American history, but I got this gift. I got a class called Modern American History. So we got to actually teach Vietnam. And so, you know, I was forced to separate my own feelings and living through it with with facts. Well, after spending two and a half years with these guys and with, you know, uh, going through all the the newspapers for, for 11 years, what I learned is that essentially, I, I kind of had it right. However, <laughs> it wasn't even close, you know. So on, on one hand, I'm saying, man, I I had it factually. What you That's like don't the, have, what Tim O'Brien, the writer who was a Vietnam veteran, he he talked in talking about his own book, the things they carried. At one point in the book, he says. You know, all of it's true and none of it's true. Yeah, it's, <laughs> so that's what that just reminds you me of. You meet with these guys and you get this entirely different sense of the war. Um, and it varied from person to person, too. It depended on where they were in the country, what year they were there, if they were in the Marines or the Army or the Navy. You had people say, I never saw anyone do drugs. The movies that have all the Vietnam people smoking reefer, those are lies. And then you'd have yep. people who were there later or in a different part of the country say, we were high all the time yes. because it was the only way we could well, stay safe. race relations. Yeah. Um, uh, you're, it's constantly uh, portrayed in movies and television, uh, these very serious uh, racial divides. However, we got both of it. We, we spoke to guys who talked about, yes, the southern guys and the northern blacks. You know, there was friction there. But I'd say more often than not, we talked to guys who said, you know what, we just don't have time for that. You know, we, we were trying to uh, uh, save our own lives and uh, save the people around us, and that's all we cared about. And so. uh, there, I think there was, as far as race relations were concerned, there was also a difference between people who were there pre-67, 68, and, yes. and there afterwards. Because yes. once once um, the ri- race riots in 67 and 68, once Martin Luther King was killed, Black Power, Black Panthers, I think that changed things. So people yep. who were there after that yep. had a – one, one guy we talked to, uh, a white kid from Stanford um, – 
said, you know, one of the things that stuck with him that really hurt him all those years was he had made a friend. It was a, it was a black guy, and then when they went to the mess hall to eat, the guy like saw a bunch of his friends of other black guys, and he looked at, you know, the guy we were talking to, white, and he just sort of said, "I can't sit with you," and it was things like that. Yeah, you know, not not outright hostile, but it was just sort of like, "I can't." It's it wouldn't be good for anyone if, if I don't go sit with. Um, you know those guys over there, and, and, and vice versa. But yeah, the interesting versa. thing is, um, we're dealing with Stanford guys, and Stanford guys grew up very differently than a kid from Alabama or Mississippi. You know, especially or, if they were from or, the west or side Georgia. Or the and if they're end. from the west side, they grew up differently from kids from Georgia, Alabama, and North Stanford. Right. Those kids seem to. Um, Re, interact seamlessly in Vietnam. So um, it's, you know, the one thing we learned is that uh, th- there was an incredible diversity of experience, experiences and viewpoints on Vietnam. There, there's no one thing. They're all proud of their service. They yes. all said they would do it again. Not one person said, worst mistake I ever made. I wish I didn't do it. Not <laughs> one. But their opinions were as different as the country. I would, you know, I, I've taught the Vietnam War. I didn't live through it. I've only taught it, you know, in the years that I've been teaching over the last 15. Um, but I would say what what I think I always understood, even, even as a student, uh, and what has become even clear to me is just how complicated and messy the history of the war, the story of the war, how difficult it is to tell one universally true story about the Vietnam War. And so when you're dealing with high schoolers, I don't know if you found this too, but I I find that, especially when you're talking about the United States, American history, American literature, kids come to a classroom with with all kinds of preconceptions, uh, political opinions that they hear from their their families, things that they've been taught as young Americans about equality and, and, and liberty and, and war and all of that. And, and they tend to like clear, definitive answers, black and white, um, right or wrong, good and evil. They have difficulty with ambigu- moral ambiguity, um, understanding things that, you know, understanding that when, for example, Martin Luther King um, gave his I Have a Dream speech and the Voting Rights Act was passed the next year, that didn't mean the end of discrimination ever. <laughs> you know, so so I, I what I've learned is that the Vietnam War and the, the cultural stuff, the historical stuff that's happening during the time of the war is, I think, the perfect, perfect kind of topic to really illustrate for, for teenagers just how messy and complicated and hard to pin down history can be. And how one thing can be true and something completely different can also be true. Right. And, and how you could you could have people proud of the fact that they served, that they served the country, that they did something that, that wasn't just selfish, um, that they listened to what President Kennedy said when he said, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country. But at the same time, have very negative feelings about the war itself – or for the things they did when they were there. That, that I think, is hard to understand. Well, how could you be proud that you did it but not think that you should have been there? 
um, it, it, it ends up being, I think, a really good topic to, to help students try to wrap their minds around the messiness and the complexity of, of American history. Yeah. Um, so I, I know the book focuses on um, – now, does it just focus on these 29 families from Stanford, or is it – that's just – that's part of it? There's, there, there's really four different uh, parts of it. One are biographies of, of uh, those who were killed. There's 40 oral histories, which range from combatants to civilians to siblings to a wife who watched her husband become ill from Agent Orange – to a family that took in uh, Vietnamese um, uh, orphans. So uh, the oral histories are probably the major part of it. But then we also did uh, stories about Stanford. And some of them are just great stories. It's hard to believe that all of these things could have happened in one, yeah, one town. Or, yeah. Because it really, we, we did fine. I mean, our theory was, was that we're going to be able to tell the whole story of the war just by looking at this one place. We were sort of going out on a limb and assuming that that was yeah. going to be true, hoping it was going to be true. It turned out to be, I think, more true than we no. even anticipated. So the overarching premise was to tell, to try as best as possible to tell the story of the arc of the Vietnam War through the eyes of people from one single town, and and you know not just the, those who were killed, but surviving veterans who still live here today or who moved away. But yeah, but also a but. girlfriend who's now a wife who yeah. had to watch. Or, or who has hundreds of letters from when her then boyfriend, now husband, was over in Vietnam, or, or like you said, the the, the family that took in yep. the, the the Vietnamese orphans who were but, airlifted but out of the, the country. I, I don't know whose bright idea this was, but the the fourth part of it was supposed to be a little thing, and that was we would make chapters by the year, and we would give um, and and uh, the reader a skim of what happened in the United States that year followed by what happened in Stanford that year. And in the war. The problem with that was the advocate was about 80 pages long then, six days a week, and we went through every year. I had them sent to Naples, Florida. The library there would send me, you know, two months at a time. And we'd be we are back. You'd be going through, and you'd find stuff. You'd find these unbelievable stories, little gems. But you'd also find relatives. He found me in the school play, you know, <laughs> yeah. in, in, when I was in fourth grade. And um, so you asked earlier about phases. The second phase was nights and weekends <laughs> at the library no. in front of the microfiche recorder, Brutal. every page of every day of the Stanford Advocate for ten years, and that's where you know. We just found the what, what I guess a journalist would call human interest stories. Yes. A group of secretaries at town hall who got pulled their money and sponsored a Vietnamese child, like you see the commercials yeah. on TV for sponsoring a child for the cup, price of a cup of coffee. That's a day. <laughs> or, or a Viet, believe it or not, a Vietnamese exchange student who was going to Stanford High who went to a Rotary Club meeting in 1967 along with a student exchange, an exchange student from Denmark. And basically gave the the Rotarians there at their lunch a pretty bleak uh, sense of how Vietnamese people saw Americans. Like that was in Stanford, or or after the war, the first murder trial in the country to rely upon post traumatic stress as a defense PTSD, happened in Stanford, Stanford, Connecticut. The, no kidding. The, yes. the, the huge um, class action lawsuit 
where veterans who were exposed to Agent Orange sued Dow Chemical and Monsanto and the government started in Stanford. It was a veteran living in Stanford and, a, and, a, and another group of, of veterans who it started as a lawsuit, became a class action lawsuit. It was an in, I can't remember the number, but it was, it was a multi million dollar settlement that all started but out of Stanford. Th- then there was th- <laughs> then there was a story of a Marine who's, who wrote his mother a letter, and he said, "Mom, I want you to send me spaghetti and meatballs um, the <laughs> way I'm accustomed uh, to, to having them." So she sends him jars of sauce and meatballs, an Italian kid, of course. (laughs) She wraps them in the advocate. Well, they they unpack this sauce, but then they're all pulling the newspaper apart and they're reading about it. And this Marine happens to read about a professor at Yale University and his... Being critical of the war. Being critical of the war. So he writes this very, very eloquent essay. Um, well, it was just a letter to the editor to the advocate. It was a letter to the editor, <laughs> yeah. but he's questioning this professor. Have you ever seen this? Have you ever seen that? Somehow, this letter ends up on the floor of Congress. It's read into the record. It's read into the record in Congress. This Marine, William Romanello, uh, gets a call from his commanding officer, and he said, well, that could have only meant trouble, the only time... And the commander said, I have a letter from the president of the United States. Oh, my goodness. So it's a letter from Lyndon Johnson addressed to him saying, I read your letter. I was very moved by it. I keep it in my jacket pocket. And every day when I get upset about the war, I read your letter. That's (laughs) an amazing story. So, yeah, so they weren't all. I mean, some of them are just sort of, like I said before, human interest stories. They're they're not necessarily – they're not as sad as some of the other ones. But, yeah, it's just remarkable if, if you um, – just just if you look at the breadth, the scope of the kinds of stories that are in the book, whether it's an oral history of a surviving veteran, a profile of, a, of someone who was killed, uh, an interview with a wife or a, a daughter, or actually there's an interview with a Vietnamese – orphan who was airlifted out of the country and adopted by a Stanford family. It's just remarkable the, the, the variety of perspectives you get on yes. this, we, this era and this war. And we said it right. I think the first sentence in the book are, these are not war stories. We, we, uh, I learned that the last time I did it. You know, the stories about two brothers meeting or letters from home are more important than uh, war stories. You know, if, we can't compete with war stories, and that's not what this book is about. It's it's about young people, and families, and um, and uh, all sorts of human uh, tragedy that happened. To me, the prevailing narrative thread was the experience of being 17, 18, 19 years old and maybe never having ventured far from Stanford at all and suddenly being sent – halfway across the world to a place, Vietnam, that a lot of them hadn't even heard of, especially if it was early in the war, 64, 65, and having to adjust to living out in a tropical jungle for days, weeks, months at a time. Um, your friends, because because a smaller number of people went to Vietnam than fought in World War II, it wasn't like these kids who were suddenly in the jungles of Vietnam could say, well, at least I know all of my friends from back home are, are doing the same thing. Most of their friends from back home were carrying on with their lives. So I, to me, that was that was one of the themes that really run through, ran through. It was the difficulty of 
negotiating those two worlds. Being a teenager in Stanford, going to the drive-in, having a girlfriend, caring more about your car than anything else in the world, and then suddenly having to make sure that your M16 didn't jam up if you were shot at. Yeah. You know. So, it, the, I mean, the way you describe the themes, um, this certainly has greater appeal than just somebody from Stanford getting something out of it. I mean, it sounds oh, like no. it's right. – so how do you – uh, or have you given any thought to, in terms of when you market this, um, how to kind of, you know, address you know, some people, someone in California might be like, eh, it's, it's about Stanford. I don't need to read this. How do you, um, or have you given any thought to that? Oh, we've given plenty. Yeah. We've, it's been uh, everything and the way we wrote everything was to say this may be this place, Stanford, Connecticut. But we use the terms universal, uh, representative of the microcosm. We used all those terms. I'm hoping people find value. I think the stories are tremendous. What they're not is you're not going to find one story where somebody attacked a, oh, that's uh, not entirely a unit true. By, its, by himself and knocked out three snipers. You're not going to get that. You are going to get a story that... It is equally important, which is guys were involved in acts of goodness over there that there's no medals for. Uh, helping uh, people in villages, uh, medical care, helping them construct things. But one of, the, one of the things we ran into, and it's been just hitting me in the head about people don't even think about this. We, we had at least three of the guys who were responsible for something called graves registration, mm. which was caring for the wounded, the dead. It's a terrible thing. We don't want to think about it. We don't want to know about it. But somebody has to do that. And we ran into three guys, and th- it was terribly traumatic. traumatic for them. And But you come to realize that the work they did – and the care for those, you know, American families expect their children to be cared for. These people were placed in that position where they had to do awful, awful, gritty work. And um, to me, that in itself was an act of heroism. We don't talk about that, you know. These guys were every bit as heroic as the story we see in the movies, I think. And um, that was one dimension. So, so- we knew, to, to your earlier question, we knew that there, there wasn't a single story in this book that was unique to a, a particular place. Um, the, these are all stories that would register with anyone who lived through the period of time at home, who fought in the war from anywhere in the country, or who are trying to learn about the war. Um, we had a, a spirited debate, we should say, with the publisher about the title and the subtitle. Um, we were pretty adamant about the American town part of the title because we wanted, you know, from the title itself, the book to indicate that this is about not a single town, but a representative American town. And the way we structured the book and the way every chapter starts with a national overview and a local overview um, was was crafted that way to deliberately show that the things that are happening in the country – on a large scale are also happening on a small scale in Stanford. If there are racial tensions in 
the United States in 1968. We have story. We saw evidence of that in Stanford in 1968. So, um, you know, the subtitle of the book is Stories of Service from Stanford, Connecticut. Um, I don't think that that was a subtitle that the two of us would have chosen. Um, I think we understand why the publisher, McFarland, chose it. Um, in the end, they, they are an academic press. They needed to have a subtitle that was specific and that people doing research could, you know, um, find useful. But we, we didn't want Stanford anywhere in the title yeah. because we, we didn't want people to see it and think it's just a, a piece of sort of quaint, picayune local history. I mean, it is local, and, and someone reading the book from Stanford I think will have a different experience than someone somewhere else in the country. But I can't imagine anyone with any interest in the time period or the war itself to read this and say, I can't relate to this, or this doesn't teach me or tell me something, or this doesn't um, create some kind of emotional response. So as we, as we wrap up here, uh, really quick, Matt, what's one thing you learned about yourself after going through the process of, of doing the research and, and co-writing this book? Oh, geez. Uh, it, it, I'll tell you, it, it, really, it really changed. Uh, it made me think an awful lot about the way that I've taught writing as, as an English teacher over the years. Um, certainly having spent that much time thinking about all of the decisions you make with language and structure and editing when you're considering, considering a real audience, I think that's really dramatically changed the way I approach teaching students how to write something, to actually imagine a real audience and what are the different considerations that go into not just what you say but how you say it and what you leave out. And uh, So I think you know, as, as a teacher, that's something that has had an impact on me. Personally, are you, are you more forgiving of typos now? Uh, no, I, I'm. 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 There. There may or may not be a few that made it all the way through. Despite <laughs> there always are, and there I, always I are. will never be okay with that. I, I am, as a teacher, yes, more forgiving of typos now because I see just how many people can read something and still let it let a typo by. But um, you know, as as far as uh, I think, it's given me a much greater appreciation for the subjectivity. Of, of history and how different different perceptions can can clash with one another but both be true. Um, and it also, you know, I grew up having not lived through the Vietnam War, having, a, I think, a clearer sense of the Vietnam War as a, as a, as a foreign policy blunder, a mistake. Um, I just think now talking with all these people, hearing their feelings about it, hearing why they chose to serve or some of the things that they did that were um, good or noble while they were over there, um, it's, it's kind of made me a little bit more reluctant to make definitive judgments about good or bad or right or wrong mm-hmm. um, in, in history because it's just, it's just too hard to find one definitive true, totally accurate, objective uh, version of, 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 the, of the truth. Tony, you learn anything about, uh, about yourself? Kind of, this is your second um, published book. Uh, anything you, you learned about yourself along the way? Well, uh, I, I've, and I've had a lot of time to think about this as Matt was talking. <laughs> I, 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 well, you've learned that your, your computer skills yeah, are woefully I, inact- that inadequate. My, uh, that never to do anything <laughs> with my son. Uh, <coughs> uh, 
never uh, have, what was it, that you were able to edit while I was writing something? Google, I yeah, using Google Docs. Google that was, Docs. That uh, was, uh, I'd see the cursor moving. I'd have to yell and threaten him and say, get off this document. Um, I, 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 the, the one thing I, I have to uh, say, and it's not directly answering your question, um, the, the one thing that just, and I think Matt would agree, hit us time and time again was that we learned that these guys have been um, portrayed in a completely inaccurate, completely a mythical um, way, and that they were, in fact, a an outstanding exemplary generation of young people. We talk about World War II, the greatest generation. Um, these, these young men lived in the shadow of the greatest generation. They had an incredible burden and an impossible task, and they performed in an exemplary fashion. And um, most of them, contrary to public uh, knowledge, enlisted, were not drafted. Most of these men enlisted. Most Vietnam veterans enlisted. So th this was a much better, um, much more accomplished group than they'll ever be given credit for. That, that's the lesson yeah. that sticks with me through this. And though there are certainly truths in some of the stereotypes, I mean, Vietnam veterans have struggled with uh, substance abuse, homelessness, depression, PTSD. But I, I think... Uh, TV, the movies, even even literature, I think, have made it seem like that was the norm, um, and that you know the picture that I sort of grew up with. You, you think about some of the the Vietnam movies from the eighties, um, or even the seventies and the eighties. You know, uh, of a group of people who could not adjust, who could not connect, who could not get on with their lives, who were, you know, bitter. Um, just, I mean, there, there, there may be still pain. I think all veterans have some degree of survivor's guilt Absolutely. and PTSD. But they, the people we, we've, you know, there are forty, almost forty veterans whose stories, living veterans whose stories are in this book. Almost to, I mean, to a person, they've, 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 they've had successful careers and family lives, and and um, I think have tried to live their life in a way that honors the people who went to Vietnam and didn't get to come home and, and, and live. Yeah, Tony, I'm glad you made that distinction um, and saying, you know, how, how, you know, your belief is that they were portrayed in an unfair way because I think when you think of how Vietnam vets are portrayed in, <clears throat> in pop culture, um, it is, you know, the guy with the long hair throwing his medals at it's the... It's Rambo. It's John Rambo. It's, uh... Yeah, <laughs> that's right. Which I hear they're making a Rambo... Oh, Four, five, whatever the latest one is. Most probably. Yeah. <laughs> Here, you know, Stallone's going to be doing that with like, you know, a, mm. I don't know what, a catheter maybe. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, come on. Yeah. Um, well, this 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 has been great. Now, tell me when uh, when is the book um, due for publication? Set for publication. The book is actually out. It's available now, either direct through the publisher McFarland and Company. You can also buy it on Amazon. Um, we will be having a couple of signing events in the area November 14th. If you're here in Stanford at the Ferguson Library's Bennett Branch, we're going to be giving a presentation, signing books. The library will be selling them. We're going to be at the Darien Library one town over on December 5th. 
and I think we, we have McCain. some other things that are in the works as well. But the book is out. January it is available. 7th. Okay. Yeah, I didn't know if it was coming out in December or – but you can – people can go and they can, can buy it now. People can go. I have, uh, you know, uh, my, my 20th high school reunion is coming up, and I had some friends emailing me to ask if I was going to the reunion later this month and then sort of mentioning, oh, by the way, I bought your book. I can't wait to read it. So, yeah, it is out there. It is, it is available, Amazon and We've from McFarland. We've heard from people who finished it already, and I don't think they're lying to you. No, I don't think and, they are. Uh, we're very flattered, but, but November 14th is the – That's sort of the launch, launch at big, least the big. live in-person yes. launch. So we'll, we're going to have – we've invited all of the people who are in the book, who, who are local, to come and join us. Um, we want to sign books, but we also want to have them sign yeah. books, and, and we want to – not put them in the spotlight necessarily, but at least acknowledge them. And there are even some some people we interviewed uh, who live in uh, Alabama. One guy from is coming from Alabama for the for the signing he's on a, November fourteenth. He's 14th. a Catholic high grad. Um, another guy's coming from Delaware. One guy was coming from New Mexico. So it's, we're excited. It'll be kind of like a nice coda to the whole thing. Yeah. Well, good. Thank you. Uh, thank you both for your time. Thanks. Mike. Thanks for having. Thanks us. Thanks for having us. Thanks very much. Well, thanks for listening in to this episode of Uncorking Story with Matt and Tony Pavia. If you want to learn more about their book, please visit anamericantownatwar.wordpress.com. And of course, you can learn more about me and my books by visiting michaelcarlinauthor.com. That's Carlin with an O and not an I. And if you like what you heard today, please consider sharing and corking a story with a friend. We love it when our listeners do that. So for all of the dedicated, hardworking staff here... Busy at work at Uncorking a Story. This is Mike Carlin saying thank you for listening and until next time.